This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of scripture. I was raised in a Jewish family in a Jewish home without much Jewish community to speak of, but certainly with a strong sense of Jewish identity and no exposure to the New Testament, very little exposure to Jesus or Christian ideas. And it was in college. Uh, I went to a large public state school in California, and I sort of just so happened to be surrounded by Christians. My roommate was a Christian. Mm. My best friend was a Christian. Uh, and so college for me became a real searching time and, and for the first time in my life, like encountering the, the person of Jesus and, and figuring out who he was and what he was all about and whether that had any relevance for me and for my life. Um, and so that's kind of in terms of like a spiritual autobiography that would, that's how I would sum up my entire undergraduate years was like wrestling with the claims of of the New Testament with, with very little knowledge. I, I don't think I was actually reading the New Testament. I was, I, I started going to a church because mm. uh, my roommate went to church. And so I just started going with her and I started going to campus crusade. Um, and at our particular college campus, I think we have to call it crew now. Um, mm-hmm. But at our particular college campus uh, crew, which was campus crusade at the time, went from a hundred people to 5,000 people in a five year period. And it was the time that I was there. So it was kind of this weird, like Christian explosion uh, that I just so happened to, to like be caught up in, like very much caught up in actually, I started going to, you know, these campus crusade meetings and um, eventually started attending a vineyard church plant and, and just sort of felt swept up into something um, nobody was Jewish and, and the Jewish Hillel group, which is like the Jewish student group mm-hmm. on my college campus was, was not talking about God and spirituality. It was, it was pretty secular and pretty kind of social issues driven, which was not the conversations that I was interested in as I was kind of increasingly seeking and wrestling and asking questions. But I, um, there was this very clear, explicit divide between myself as a Jew and all of these Christians with this whole thing called Christianity. And, and that's kind of the divide that I've been trying to bridge ever since. fascinating and I'm sure perplexing at many points in your in your actual lived life mm-hmm. did you as you did start reading the New Testament more closely um, and then certainly as you went into graduate studies in uh, Christian theology and Jewish theology um, did you ever feel like you were um, you know the one hopping up and down pointing at things that nobody else saw in in these texts you know not Initially, um, honestly, what I tried to do was just kind of hide. And so what I did, Mm. because I was, because I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know any other Jewish followers of Jesus. I didn't know about Messianic Judaism. Maybe I'd like heard of Jews for Jesus at some point, 
which is not the same as Messianic Judaism. It's like one organization, um, not doesn't encapsulate the whole movement of Messianic Judaism. And so honestly, what I did is I just put my Jewish identity on the shelf for mm. uh, several years because I thought, I don't, I don't know how to make sense of these. And um, nobody was talking about the Jewishness of Jesus or the Jewishness of the New Testament. I did have some friends who were like, oh my gosh, Jen, you're Jewish, the chosen people, the 144,000. And I was like in college. And the last thing I wanted was to like be totally different and singled right. out from all these like Christian friends of mine. So I just tabled it. Um, and and as you alluded to, I, I was fascinated by theology and religion and, 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 you know, spirituality. And so in college, I was a political science major planning to go to law school, like most of mm. the students in my department. And it was kind of at the end of my journey when I had, um, you know, really pressed more deeply into some of these spiritual religious identity kinds of questions that I scrapped the law school plan and went to divinity school at Yale Divinity School. And it was really there almost at the end of my MDiv program that the Jewish piece resurfaced in a way that I could not ignore. And I realized that like I was leaving something behind and I had this like wonderful feisty Jewish Hebrew teacher and she would have us in her living room. And, um, and I just kind of felt this tug of, of like, well, what about that part of who I am that I've just, I, I just went into the church world. I, I just, um, left it behind really. And, and it, and it turns out it was not willing to be left behind. And so, um, no that, puns intended here, <laughs> right? None at all. <laughs> um, and so then it was in my PhD program, which was at Fuller Seminary that, that all of these questions came to the fore and my doctoral advisor, Howard Lowen was just incredible and, and really did something which hadn't happened at Yale which was pressed into my identity. And he was like, Jen, it really matters that you're Jewish and the way that you approach scripture and the way that you approach Christian theology, like it matters. And so he was the one, and he very early on introduced me to Mark Kinzer, who's a leading mm. Messianic Jewish theologian and who right. has since become a very close friend and colleague and mentor to me. <clears throat> and so it was my doctoral program where I really um, started to press into these questions and started to wrestle with the tensions rather than just table the Jewishness and sort of be a Christian like everybody else was a Christian. Um, and, and maybe that was the point where I started jumping up and down and saying, wait, there's things here that, that, you know, you're not, you're not seeing, but, but at the, by that point I had a whole community that was sort of teaching me how to do that. Hmm. The, um, so there, when it, when it comes to the parting of the ways, as they call it, right, between J Judaism and Christianity, and I, I, I struggle with this when I teach classes because I realize I say Judaism and Jewishness, and I have to almost say like, and by Judaism, I mean not the religion that Jesus practiced, which I'm not sure what to call that, maybe the ancient Israelite religion in Greco-Roman culture, but the Judaism that emerges uh, post-temple is a, is a new religion, or as my Jewish friends say, uh, Pharisees won. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and it basically mm -hmm. becomes a form of Pharisaical Judaism. And not even necessarily some of the negative elements of Pharisaical Judaism, but a lot of the positive ones as well. Um, but I wonder where you placed yourself in that struggle, like, um, because we say Judaism, and we actually have to almost say Judaisms, which mm -hmm. one, when, where, mm -hmm. The kind that offers animal sacrifices, or the kind that you know eats beets at seder, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So, so 
how did that struggle work out for you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting and important distinction. And I feel like you're right that these categories all too often just get sort of mixed together and used in whatever way happens to work in any given context. Um, and yet, <clears throat> while I do think you're absolutely right when we talk about sort of ph- Pharisaical Judaism that begins re- that 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 morphs into Rabbinic Judaism, and that's sort of all we have to go off at this point. I mean, there is no. I mean, that's what that's that's the tradition that has preserved Judaism. Um, but I don't see. I mean, I do think that it's connected to what I would call the Judaism of Jesus Day, Second Temple Judaism. I mean, obviously, that's sort of what the Pharisees are are building off of. And in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple, figuring out how do we sort of reinvent um, ourselves and our community and our longevity, which is brilliant, by the way, like who, who would have thought that it could have survived with, with no temple for so long. Well, <clears throat> and so, and, and you read those rabbinic texts where they're talking about hashing out how to do sacrifice. I didn't actually know I was reading the Talmud for a while uh, on the Le- portions where they're exegeting, they're examining Leviticus and someone later pointed out to me, yeah, when they're writing, the temple's been gone for hundreds of years. Uh-huh. I would have never in my life guessed that. Mm-hmm. You think they're going to the temple tomorrow to go sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So they well, are keeping it alive even in their own imagination. I and mean, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, they're, yes. like, they're vividly uh, vivifying it in their imagination, their theological imagination. Right. I mean, I feel like this is one of the areas where Christian theology makes like a, a very convenient theological connection between the death of Jesus and the destruction of the temple. Like those things just go hand in hand. Like, see, we don't need the temple anymore because... Mm. But in Jewish thought, where you're not like building so so much or, or at all on the on the death and the redemptive significance, the at- atonement of of Jesus, that's it, it ends up being sort of a, a different problem that there's no temple. It ends up being a problem, which I think most mm-hmm. Christians wouldn't wouldn't say that it's a problem and are, are kind of off put when talk of like rebuilding the temple or you know I mean maybe there's these sort of end time scenarios, but but it's not a it's not an actual theological problem which mm. which it is in Judaism as evidenced by the kinds of writings that you're talking about um and so i would say those conversations are um very much alive in messianic jewish circles right circles of jewish followers of jesus for whom these types of topics and conversations i think have a a more tangible kind of gritty significance than than many you know gentiles or non-jewish christians who you know, are quite happy to be done with animal sacrifices. I mean, not like I want to go back to animal sacrifices, but but the but the the ideas and the the theological categories have a different kind of meaning um, when when approached from from a certain vantage point, which is not the typical you know evangelical or or otherwise Protestant Christian reading of the text. I would say. Yeah, a good friend of mine, uh, Ari Lam, who we've had on this podcast a couple times, has uh, he's really big into it, and I can't remember who the person is that wrote the book, but it's something like Westerners love dead Jews. Um, that that d- the idea of a dead Jew does a lot of work for Westerners, and I, I wonder uh-huh. if that kind of for evangelicals, like this general sentiment, like how quickly can we get to in our imagination, European white uh, Christians mm-hmm. and get away from the kind of the Semitic roots here. Mm-hmm. And I think your, your comment about the temple 
uh, plays into that. How can how quickly can we get away from animal sacrifice? I might argue, or one might argue, mm. that we actually do participate in in in, an, in a bloody sacrifice. Um, that we eat the flesh and drink the blood mm-hmm. of, of the sacrifice mm-hmm. as we participate in the Lord's Supper, and that's exactly how He intended it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, have you experienced this in the church um, as as you've encountered it? This kind of I mean, I would say a lot of my experience in the church is we just don't know anything about mm-hmm. Judaism and how it connects. And then sometimes when we think about it, we think, oh, that's all that Old Testament stuff. Mm-hmm. And the quicker we can dump that, the easier everything will be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so what do you do with that when you encounter people basically expressing that sentiment? Yeah, I mean, this is um, this is like getting right to the core of my teaching and writing and scholarship, which is... Um, trying to problematize, uh, you know, the technical term is Christian supersessionism, right? Supersessionism right. being replacement theology in, in some way or another. And there are different ways to, to, to construe it, different ways that it plays out. Kind of saying, yeah, that Old Testament, like all those dusty rules and stuff, like Jesus came to sort of set us free from all that. And now we have this new thing and it's grace and faith and, um, and, and we're kind of done with all of that. And, and, it, and it's, from, from my perspective, it's remarkable how common and just almost like taken for granted that mm-hmm. perspective is in at least evangelical circles. Um, I mean, I would say that many Christians don't even think about it. They don't even realize they don't even have like, it's not even, it's, it's never even been brought to their attention. It's just the air that we breathe in, in mm-hmm. evangelical uh, or Protestant Christianity. And so you get, you know, s- sort of related to, to the to the sort of dead Jew thing. Like um, Jeremy Cohen uh, coined the phrase uh, the hermeneutical Jew, and so it's this idea that Jews sort of play a certain role, and most of them being like Old Testament Jews or whoever um, play a certain role in Christian theology. And it doesn't so much matter whether that's accurate; it just sort mm-hmm. of has to like be this placeholder for you know, fill in the blank, legalism, works righteousness. And it's this fascinatingly um, vibrant undercurrent of Christian theology that is just everywhere. I mean, I mm. um, I pitched a piece, uh, which I'm not sure if it's going to get published or not, on the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is like, we have little kids and it's like a big thing. And I, I was going to, I, I intend to do research about like how many million Jesus Storybook Bibles have been sold. But I'm like reading this thing to my kids being like, this is totally supersessionist. Like this is yeah. teaching my kids to think that, you know, that that Jesus sort of did away with Torah and with God commanding us to live in a certain way. I mean, even as Gentile Christians, like, so anyway, all of that to say, it's just very much in in Western Christianity. And, and one of my big, um, you know, jobs as I see it is to begin to poke at that and 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 hopefully do a little bit of dismantling or at least like I said problematizing like raising questions about maybe you know issues and complications with this framework that um that is just so often assumed and taken for granted hmm. um so let's think of an actual live topic in in the book of acts um Paul, his very last act as a free man, uh, or a somewhat free man, uh, in Acts 21, uh, comes into the elders of, of Jerusalem, and they say, hey, yo, Paul, we, we hear that you're teaching that the Torah isn't necessary. And these are all Christ followers, or Jesus followers. Um, 
And uh, he says, no, no, that's not true. And they actually ask. I, I'm, I'm astounded about how many Christians don't even know this passage mm-hmm, exists in Acts. Mm-hmm. So they, they say, well, could you do us a solid, I'm paraphrasing, and uh, could you go and offer a sacrifice with these men who are doing the Leverite sacrifices and, and rituals in order to show that you are not teaching that uh, we don't need the Torah anymore? And he says, yeah, yeah, of course, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And he goes down to the temple, participates in that, and, and also can't help himself and starts preaching and starts riots and gets arrested and goes off. What do you think that tells us about Paul's view of the temple, of the Torah, of this whole new movement that he's mm-hmm. uh, taking part in that maybe isn't valued by a lot of Christians? Mm-hmm. I mean, Acts 21, I think, is one of those New Testament passages, and I would add Acts 15 to that list, um, that I I think many Christians, even Christians who are like serious Bible scholars and and, and real, you know, devoted Christians, um, I think a lot of times just don't, maybe don't know what to do with it or just sort of brush over it. Like, I think what we would expect Paul to say in Acts 21, given um, the common framework for Christian theology is like, by no means would I do that <laughs> temple sacrifice because we're done Ooh, with day, it. May day. <laughs> right, right. You know, like, let me tell you about Jesus. And, yeah. and, and he does tell them about Jesus, but, but he's in the context, right. Of like doing the, the, the ritual, like, oh my yeah. gosh, I can't believe they're saying that I'm disregarding Torah. What can I do to, to show that that's not true? Um, and so it's one of those, um, passages, I think, in the New Testament that really should cause us to pause and say, wait a second, what is Paul, what is he doing? And that's Mm -hmm. exactly the right question. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's interesting talking about Pauline scholarship because, uh, you know, in in at least certain circles of Pauline scholarship, there's this big kind of gap between the Paul of his letters and the Paul of Acts Mm -hmm. because of passages like this, right? And so people are like, wait, but, but didn't, like, has Paul read Galatians? You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> and so what ends up happening, I think, is that at least one of my professors in seminary, I was asking her like these kind of questions. And, and she simply said, well, Acts is not historical. Like Acts is Luke's portrayal right. of Paul, which which I was like, wait, but like it's in the canon, you know? And, and so, uh, so I think uh, there's a better answer to that question, which is like, well, let's try. And, and I, I would be, you, you know, there's, there's, if, if you're talking canonically, um, there's an argument to be made for the fact that Acts comes before Paul's letters, right, as if right. the canon is begging us, beseeching us to read Paul's letters through the book of Acts, um, which is a deeply theological document. Um, I don't think we should just say, well, that's a misportrayal of Paul or that's not historical. I think it causes us to wrestle with, okay, then how do we read Galatians given what we see in Acts 21, given what we see in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council? Um, And so now, you know, you have this whole Paul within Judaism camp of Pauline scholarship that takes for granted, like takes as the starting point that Paul was a Torah observant Jew until the day he died. And so if we take that as the starting point, it opens up like all these new fascinating conversations um, that, that, that forces us to notice and ask new questions of the text. So for example, like, wait, what if Paul was talking to Gentiles, not Jews, when he's saying negative things about following Torah? Maybe he, in line with Jewish tradition, is discouraging Gentiles from thinking that they need to sort of become Jewish, 
which also, by the way, lines up perfectly with the declaration in Acts 15, right? That the Gentiles do not have to take on Jewish practice in order to follow Jesus. So I think um, if we take Acts seriously, it gives us a, a pretty important um, kind of primer for understanding Paul. And Acts 15, also the, the decision of the council there it, it is also because, you know, this is bizarre, like you can eat meat, but not strangled. And you're like, well, where is that coming from? Well, that mm-hmm. seems to have a deep resonance with the Torah's teaching about care for animals uh, mm-hmm. as creation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let me pause here because you said several things that keyed off a few fireworks in my mind. Um, okay. Let me come back to this one question. Um, would you say that Jesus was also a Taurus uh, observant Jew until the day he died. And then maybe you could push it on. Was he a Torah observant Jew beyond the day that he died? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, you're to get to your second part first, I think one of the things that, you know, many Christians also don't think about is that Jesus has a body and Jesus is Jewish, like present tense. And that's something I think we need to kind of sit with because I do think that he was Torah observant. Um, And I think that um, the New Testament gives us clues uh, that point in this direction. But interestingly, and, and, and in a troubling way, our translations, our English translations, often serve to obscure those kinds of connections. So, you know, just one example. Okay, good, good. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I sort of love to point out is that the New Testament uh, in Matthew 9 makes explicit that Jesus wore tzitzit. Jesus wore this traditional fringed garment that's commanded in Numbers 15. Um, But if you read Matthew 9 and, and parallel passage in Luke, um, it, it, your English Bible and my English Bible probably don't say that. What they say is that he, you know, it's this, the story of the woman with the problem of bleeding, which again is, right. is, is, is language that's obscuring issues of ritual purity. Um, thank you, Matt Thiessen for writing an excellent right, book on right, yeah. Jesus and ritual pure, you know, the ritual purity in the gospels. Um, So this woman with the problem of bleeding, uh, which is very neat language for an issue of ritual purity, reaches out and touches, you know, most English translations say like Jesus's cloak. And I'm like, cloak? Is he he Gandalf? Like he's, you know, like. (laughs) Or or even the hem of his garment. Yeah, the hem of his garment. You get a lot of that. Cloak is my personal favorite. Cloak. But what is. He does like you know, cover, you know, know. throws on the Jedi hood and disappears in the crowds. Totally, totally. Um, It's trying to be culturally relevant. Yes. Um, But the problem is that really what she touches out, what she reaches out and touches are his tzitzit. Uh, That's what the Greek says. And, 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 and I. What's the Greek term there, by the way? Kraspedon. Um, Is that the the fringes? The, the, uh, the wings of his, uh, his garment or something like that? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, where Kanaf comes in, to be honest, uh, I think that that Kraspedon is just the Greek translation of tzitzit, like okay. fringes that you have in in Hebrew. Um, but what's most interesting is that in Matthew twenty three, where Jesus is censuring the Pharisees for their showiness, the Pharisees wear Kraspedon; they wear tzitzit. But Jesus in Matthew nine, I mean, it's the same word in Greek. Jesus, the Pharisees, like most Jews throughout history, have worn this fringed garment. But our New Testaments, like, have the Pharisees who who we love to paint as like 
these sort of legalistic, they didn't get it right. Um, they wore tzitzit, but Jesus, he wore a cloak. Uh, and so it's fascinating to me. And like I said, mm-hmm. deeply troubling that our, that our translations don't help us in terms of understanding Jesus's Jewishness. And so related to that is this issue of ritual purity, which I think is fascinating. And again, Matt Thiessen is this New Testament scholar who, who wrote this book on, on ritual purity in the gospels that is just so fascinating because um, it's just not something that we think of. And so, so certain, you know, I wrote an article on Matthew nine, because it's this weird passage, Matthew nine, 18 through 26, where um, you have this woman with the problem of bleeding and, uh, you know, Jesus is going to, to, to sort of, um, you know, eventually raise the, the centurion's daughter. And uh, it's like this interrupted sequence, and it doesn't read well. But if we read it through the lens of ritual purity, it makes perfect sense, as does the fact that Jesus heals a leper in the chapter right before that. And so I think, again, there's just sort of um, these layers that, that, that um, it's not even so much peeling away layers of the text. It's just that layers have been added onto the text uh, that that don't teach us how to interpret it through a, you know, Jewish Hebraic lens, right. um, su- such that it's kind of shocking when you then see, wait a second, like these pieces actually kind of fit together. And Jesus was very much operating within the framework of temple purity and, uh, you know, second temple Judaism and, and, and maybe not like throwing all that away. Right. And I mean, as a much more general point, coming out of Matthew 5 through 7, you know, this idea where he starts with, don't think that I've come to, to do away with the Torah, I've come to fulfill it. And then he offers midrash and instruction on the Torah where he says, and he, where, he, where a lot of people think he's overthrowing the Torah or giving a new understanding. I'm like, no, just go read Leviticus. He is just basically saying, yeah, what Leviticus said, right? What Deuteronomy said. Yes, exactly. I mean, the entire Sermon on the Mount is prefaced with that statement. I did not come to abolish, you know, the the law and the commandments. So, um, so yes, like, and, and I think it's it's kind of one of those things. At least in my experience, like, once I had eyes to see, once we have eyes mm-hmm. to see, um, there's just I, I think some of the some of the pieces fall into place, and I don't think it erases. Um, tensions. I'm all about sort of like, let's press into the tensions. Let's not ignore them. Let's not push Mm -hmm. them to the side. I don't think it does away with all the tensions, but maybe what it does is it sort of refocuses on what the actual tensions are, which I think is a different set of issues than, than what, um, you know, contemporary Protestant Christianity tends to be preoccupied with. So um, speaking of tensions, you've probably raised quite a few in many (laughs) listeners ears. They're thinking like, Oh, great. Well, Here's a whole thing that I've never thought about before. Um, so I wonder, a- apart from maybe making friends with uh, Jews and, and reading uh, the Gospels together and asking, what do you see that I don't see? Um, or uh, going to a Jewish community, whether that's Messianic or otherwise, and mm-hmm. get learning from them. Then any, do you have any go-to books or articles? We can link to all of these in the, in the mm-hmm. show notes. But you have anything mm-hmm. that you just say, read this as a starter, and then we mm-hmm. can go from there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I mentioned was this this notion of Christian supersessionism, which I think is just so common and 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 almost taken for granted in a lot of circles and conversations. Uh, and and the sort of go to book on Christian supersessionism is a book by Kendall Solon mm-hmm. uh, called "The God of Israel and Christian Theology," where he just lays it out, like goes does a whole sort of sweep of church history, starting with you know second century church fathers and ending with twentieth century. Theologians like Karl Barth, who who have perpetuated a particular understanding of Christianity, um, and so that's I, I would say that's um, you know it's 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 a it's a bit academic, but it's certainly accessible, and it is just I mean I have never found a better treatment of Christian supersessionism. Mm. Um, again, I think Matt Thiessen's book is a really significant book on uh, it's called Jesus and the Forces of Death, uh, and then the subtitle is something about like ritual purity in the New Testament and the Gospels. Um, and it's just fascinating because it's 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 situating Jesus in a particular context uh, that I think is pretty radical for mm-hmm. most Christians to think about. Um, I mean, speaking of, you know, I've, I've mentioned Messianic Judaism a few times. Mark Kinzer is a significant, as I said, friend and mentor of mine. Um, Mark Kinzer's written a number of books at this point. Uh, his first book, uh, which came out in 2005, was called Post-Missionary Messianic Judaism. And it's really offering uh, kind of like a Messianic Jewish reading of the New Testament, where mm. he uh, is laying out, you know, interacting with passages like Acts 15, like Acts 21, uh, and talking about what is the relevance of those texts in terms of understanding Jew-Gentile relationships in the New Testament and how does that connect to us today in this era where Messianic Judaism sort of emerges in the latter half of the 20th century. uh, And we're sort of wrestling with some of those same questions again uh, in a new way, questions that I think were very pressing for the first community. Um, And Mark Kinzer also, I'll I'll, I'll tack one more on there, his his newest book is called Jerusalem Risen. No, Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen. And it, it also has a more popular uh, version that's out called Besorah. Um, mm. I don't remember the subtitle. Um, but it's talking about the land, the significance of the land. Because, of course, if we're going to try to enter into the New Testament text with this set of issues, uh, you know, in, in our in our in our, you know, interpretive lens, we have to talk about the land of Israel, right? right. Which, which uh, we have to talk about the way that that Jesus understood and interacted with the land, and the way in which the land is part and parcel of God's covenant with Israel. Which, of course, is very complicated to do in our day and age when you have issues related to the modern state of Israel looming large, and uh, political issues, issues of justice, the, the Palestinian people. I mean, that's kind of um, what what is in our faces every day on the news in terms of the land of Israel. But, um, you know, one of the things that I I think needs to get talked about, Jerry McDermott is another really good go-to scholar on these issues, um, is kind of the land. Like, how do we think theologically, um, and not just ideologically, right? How do we think theologically about issues related to the land of Israel? So that would, that would be, those would be my starting points for that question. So the final one you gave there, the land actually dredges up several things for me. Um, one is, you know, thinking about the intellectual world of the Bible, how they are intellectually formed and shaped. Uh, they're they're formed and shaped in community and through ritual participation and common everyday rituals and the big the big rituals all the way up to the temple and the pilgrimages. But it's specifically in that land, you know. I have to tell students like, you know, 
God could have dragged them into any land. He could have put them in mm-hmm. you know, Babylon or Ur or Egypt and had tons of water and they would have been mm-hmm. just fine. And they could just throw a spade in the ground and they'd have food forever. Um, mm-hmm. And he brings them into this water, this land where he makes them depend on himself. Um, and, and not only that, but, you know, Christians, this struck me recently, you know, our participation in animal sacrifice, the Lord's supper Mm -hmm. is through grapes and bread and right. Like grapes are not Mm -hmm. grown everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Great. There's actually like, this is the fact that we use, uh, wine is specific to this particular land, Mm -hmm. um, and terrace farming and all the things they had to do to eke calories out of it. Um, so I wonder when we think about, Christian, how, how Christians should be intellectually formed, where, where do you, like, do you think everybody should, um, well, I'm trying to, I, I just had Cindy Parker on, I think she's going to be on the episode before you, where she does nothing but the narrative of Israel and the land, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you see, like, the average Christians, the necessary knowledge of how the land functions and how we should think about the land? Because I think for most Christians, they don't think about that at all, mm-hmm. or they have a really naive, like, Holy land. Oh, it's important. You know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. all my Brazilian friends, when I go to Israel, they're like, oh, you get to walk exactly where mm-hmm. Jesus did. And I'm like, yeah, it's cool, but I'm not, I'm not sure what to make of all of that. Mm-hmm. So where do you place the land kind of in the theological journey of most Christians who, who mm-hmm. have not thought about most of the things that you've talked about here? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think that there are, um, I- I've certainly come across a lot of Christians in my day who who are sort of like, oh my gosh, the Holy Land where Jesus walked, like, um, th- that's amazing. And there's this kind of reverence, which which I think is helpful in that it drives interest in like, mm-hmm. well, let's press into the land. Let's talk about the land. Um, and then I've also come across many Christians who are like, kind of this, um, like N.T. Wright, Jesus universalizes the land. It's 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 about the whole earth yeah. now. So so people who are just really like all too willing to just say, well, the land doesn't matter anymore because Jesus. It's it's not just about the people of Israel. It's about you know the whole earth, and it's not just about this one piece of land. It's about you know sanctifying all of God's creation, which on one hand is true, right? But it's it's kind of the, again, it's a tension. It's like, well, how do we still hold on to? the undeniable role that the land plays in God's everlasting covenant with the people of Israel and this sort of like universalizing impulse that, that, that I would say is there in some Mm -hmm. sense in the new Testament. But, but what's, what's, what's problematic for me, I think is when that just sort of sweeps over and wipes out that, that whole like land piece um, and then, and then I think again, the other thing that I probably encounter most often is this sort of um, contemporary justice in the Holy Land kind of concerns, which again are are very fair and legitimate, but should I think we need to have a serious conversation about contemporary politics and I and, and sort of Zionist mm-hmm. ideology. Uh, and how that's not exactly the same as doing good biblical theology of the land. Yeah. And again, I mean, the book I mentioned by Mark Kinzer and, and Jerry McDermott edited, edited a collection of essays called The New Christian Zionism, which is um, an incredible... Which you have an essay in. Which, uh, no, I don't have an essay in that one. I have another... Jerry has edited a lot of oh, volumes, I'll tell other, you. That. That's the other edited volume, sorry, the yes. Lexham volume. Yeah. Yes, the Lexham volume, Understanding the Jewish Roots of Christianity, right. which is that's also right. an excellent Jerry McDermott volume with an essay by Matt Thiessen on ritual purity, since we've talked about that. 
Um, and since you've mentioned and liturgy Mark Kinzer, and Mark Kinzer and David Rudolph and uh, Isaac Oliver, I mean, it's a great group. And you've talked a, a number of times, you've mentioned sort of liturgy, like we do participate in sacrifices. I mean, there was a great liturgical scholar who contributed to that volume as well, Matthew Olver, who talks about sort of the the Jewish Hebraic roots of Christian liturgy, which is another mm-hmm. fascinating, you know, a kind of angle or portal into this conversation. Uh, but but so in Jerry's other edited volume, one of the many is the, is the New Christian Zionism, where it's just um, you know really thoughtful scholars engaging these issues uh, who are very aware of the modern Israeli Palestinian conflict and 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 yet refuse to let that obscure more fundamental theological issues connected to the ongoing significance of the land of Israel. I mean, again, it's a tension and we have to be um, forthright about our treatment of it. But but I, I think it's a bit intellectually dishonest to dismiss biblical theology of the land because of some perception of injustice or, or, or reality of injustice or whatever that is. Um, like that's, that's a, that's a, it's it's there's there's separate issues i mean they're connected right but they're but they're right. separate issues and i think we need to be on honest about that yeah and on, on the flip side I, i've run into both as well people who just dismiss everything because of the modern political issue which is a f- extremely complex issue mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. the longer i lived in israel the more like mm-hmm. i didn't understand more i felt like i just understood less and less and less yes. the more i knew yeah uh, and on the flip side you know the church that's just kind of naively just like, well, if there's Jews there, then everything mm-hmm. is great and it's golden and it's mm-hmm. sanctified by God. So um, that we want to be uh, friends and allies and, and uh, like good ones uh, that can wound strategically wound as well uh, mm-hmm. for the sake of the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Jen Rosner, thank you so much. And I think we're going to have to hear from you again because I feel like we barely scratched the surface uh, in this conversation. Well, thank you. It's it's really fun to chat with you about these things, and, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to continue the conversation. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 